My question to both of you is, regardless of the current rhetoric, would either of you name one positive thing that you respect in one another? It's Vice President Biden, I'll let you weigh in here. My time's up. I'm sorry. Thank you, Vice President. Thank you, Mr. Trump. You have two minutes. <laughs> Thanks to both of you. I want to thank both the, uh, the candidates. I want to thank the, uh, the university here. This concludes the town hall meeting. Our thanks to the candidates, the commission, Washington University, and to everybody who watched. Good night, everyone. That wasn't the real debate. In fact, that's footage from uh, 2016 and from a Democratic uh, debate that just thought it would be funny, um, just whether or not they could say anything nice to each other. And um, we're in a new series called uh, Jesus for President. Let me tell you a little bit about that. We're actually just following up with the series we've been in and, and uh, Gospel of Luke. But how many of you uh, watched the debate this past week? How many of you are at church today because you watched the debate this past week? Right? Um, uh, if you didn't, let me, just, uh, let me summarize it for you. I, I actually kind of grabbed, I'll, I'll read through the, kind of the, the banter real quick. You ready? This is an abbreviated version of everything that happened in an hour and a half or so of the debate. You ready? Um, accurate description of the debate. Here it goes. I'm a good president. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Gentlemen, please. Yes, I am. Shut up. You shut up. No, you shut up. You throw up and lick it up. No, uh, gentlemen, please. I don't shut up. I grow up. Gentlemen, please. I'll make a better president. No, you won't. Yes, I will. No, you won't. Yes, I will. No, you won't. Yes, I will. Gentlemen, please, you're a coronavirus. No, you're a coronavirus. No, you're a coronavirus. No, you're a coronavirus. No, I'm not. I know I'm not, but what are you? You're a coronavirus. Your son's a coronavirus. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Gentlemen, please. Your people are bad. No, yours are. No, yours are. No, yours are. No, yours are. Gentlemen, please. You didn't pay your taxes. You don't know. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Gentlemen, please. And the debate was over. There you go. If you didn't watch it, I just covered everything in a few moments. And, but if you did watch it, regardless of how you feel about politics or the candidates, as these two guys uh, kind of went at it, Trump and Biden, um, here's what I think is evident and what I think is even more evident, guys, um, by the vitriol that happened on Twitter and Facebook and in the news after the debate, and the tr uh, debate and dialogue between your friends on social media, what happened in your office places. Guys, I, I just want to just point this out very clearly. And um, Our country's sick. Our country's sick. Like, 
when you see how Christians respond to each other, not just non-Christians, or you see what's going on in politics in our country, what just becomes really, really evident is our country's sick, right? I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen the memes that talk about any sane person for 2020, you know, you've seen those signs, and people are uh, begging for a giant meteor, you know, in 2020, that's what they want, right? Because, I mean, you've heard it, I've heard it, this how in the world did, regardless, and I'm not taking shots either, either politician, how in the world are these, are two options, right? I mean, uh, if you are a uh, politically right-leaning Trump, you know, voter, candidly, there are things that you wish were different about him and his behavior and his rhetoric. Um, if you're a politically uh, left voter and would vote for Joe Biden, candidly, there are things that you wish were different about him and we kind of look at it and go, these are our two guys. How do we sort through that? And it just makes sense that as um, Christians, as the church, we would just kind of navigate this complicated time for the next four or five weeks and that we'd have some tools and some understanding and some plans for how we move forward in this. And so we're going to be working through this for the next four or five weeks. And I just candidly, I... I I don't want you to get your hopes up that it's all going to get resolved today. You're going to walk out and go, I know exactly who to vote for. Here's what I actually hope that you get over the next four or five weeks. And we'll work through it, so keep coming back. Keep asking questions. It'll be worth your time. Here's kind of the big idea, not of just today, but the next five weeks as we kind of sort through this series, and it's this. Uh, You should place your vote for a candidate, but please don't place your hope in that candidate. Right? You... You should place your vote. There's a responsibility, I, I would say. There is a burden of responsibility. And um, if you read throughout the scriptures, there's kind of this understanding that God actually um, esteems the political leaders. Uh, he gives them their authority, you know, from the very beginning with King Saul all the way through. I mean, you can even see with Nebuchadnezzar and, you know, and the pharaohs. God knew who was going to be in charge, and he allowed that to happen, right? And then he tells us throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, that there is a level of accountability and responsibility for those who he has entrusted power and influence. So at some point, every national leader, every global leader will stand before the God of the universe and give an account for how they led. And God has made that possible and allowed it, right? So there is this evidence in the scriptures that there is an expectation that um, folks who are given leadership steward it well. And they'll be held accountable, right? So when you have some kind of power and influence, you're expected to use it well. And um, um, there's not a lot discussed in the scriptures about democracy or a representative democracy or a republic, right? Whatever. Because in, in the scriptures, what you see is basically a, a leader who leads a kingdom. And uh, for the most part, it just was really, really messy. And what's so interesting, you're all the way back to the Old Testament when um, folks are going, hey, God, we really, really want to love you. We really, really want to know you. We want to serve you. And over and again, over again and the, the nation of Israel, the people that God established in his kingdom, kept telling God that they wanted to follow the rules. They wanted to live right. They wanted to do right. But they didn't know how. So first they say, God, would you just give us some rules, right? Give us some rules. And they get, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments and 603 additional ones, right? 613 laws. They, they get all those and they go, we'll surely follow all of them. This is all we need to be with you and please you, God. And then within moments, uh, that goes haywire. And then they go, God, what we need is we re- need like a, a warrior. We need someone who can help us understand the laws and then lead us out of the brokenness of, of our world. So God, would you guide us? And so God gives them judges. And 
every time the judge would come in and kind of lead them out of their sick land, their sick, you know, culture, their sick kingdom, and they would be so excited, and they'd go, God, will follow you forever, and then within moments, days, weeks, they'd turn their back again on God, and then they started saying, God, you know what we need? Other nations have kings and rulers. If you would just give us a king and a ruler, that will fix everything. So other nations have a God, and so God gives them kings. First, King Saul, some good moments for the nation of Israel, the kingdom, and then not too long after, things go bad, and just see over and over again that they keep claiming and begging and asking for something. Everything they end up getting, which they think is what they want and need, is not the thing they want or the thing they need. And so, for throughout human history, we've continued to put our hopes and stock in humans. And at some point, they will fail you. Every king failed the nation of Israel. Every human on the face of this planet was unable to keep their commitments keep their word, do everything they said they were going to do. And so throughout history, there's just been this hope and this, you know, attachment, this tethering to human beings thinking that they're going to solve the problems. And so God, in those kind of organizations and that kind of setup, basically says, hey, these leaders are going to be held to a level of accountability because they have responsibility and they have influence and they have power. Now, in America, it's a little bit different. Because we get to participate in voting. So guess what that means? That means, unlike anything you see in the scriptures, we have responsibility, and we have influence, and we have power, right? Like, collectively, as a nation, we get to discern and make decisions about who the next candidate should be, and we have a responsibility, therefore, to sort through that and make wise decisions. And over the next several weeks, we'll work through how to do that. And hear me, you will not hear me tell you to vote for a particular party or vote for a particular candidate. Right? Because it's not my responsibility to lead you in hearing what God wants you to do. But we will put a framework around you to help you make those decisions. Right? But hear, hear it again. You have, I think, a, a responsibility to place your vote for a candidate. But it would be negligent, inappropriate, and very unhelpful for you to place your hope in a candidate. Because what you see throughout the scriptures is God was establishing a kingdom. Right? And so, if you can imagine this like a, a, a political moment and for the next, you know, cycle, the next election. And, uh, what we've been working through, if you're brand new with us, is the Gospel of Luke. We started in Genesis, I mean, Luke chapter 1, and we've just kind of been uh, charting through that. And last week we finished the, the first part of Luke chapter 3, and we're just going to keep going along. So, we've been in 11 weeks. We're going to be in it for the next year or two, but it just seems appropriate to kind of put a new skin on this, go, okay, let's imagine this for such a time as right now. What I've told you over and over again, I want you to hear this, that the scriptures are both uh, timely, meaning when Luke wrote these, it was very specific to a context and a, and a people, right? And so they were timely. Luke was actually writing, get this, to a Roman official, probably a, a government official who probably had influence, probably had power, probably had lots of um, affluence as well. And so he had all those things. His name was Theophilus. And yet, he was curious to whether or not he should put his hope in a empire, a Caesar. One of the things that uh, Theophilus would have been saying 2,000 years ago, he would have been required to say at least once a day or more, that Caesar is Lord. And so Theophilus, not really sure if that's appropriate, goes, I need to figure out if I should put my hope and stock in a candidate, in a kingdom, in a leader, right? Can can't put your hope in that. And so Theophilus hires, true story, this is not folklore, myth, or legend, and 
um, extracurricular writings in the first century. Josephus and others give us some context to this. But uh, Theophilus hires this guy named Luke, who was a medical doctor, right? Well-educated, well-esteemed, uh, understood, you know, the scientific method, all those things. I mean, he's a medical doctor, and he hires him to leave his practice and spend years, if not a decade or more, to study whether or not Jesus should be called Lord instead of Caesar. So he hires this guy, Luke, and Luke spends a long time going and meeting with all first century uh, people who had contact with Jesus, all the eyewitnesses. He would have read through all the different um, writings about Jesus, including a couple of gospels that were already out there, Matthew and Mark. Those are biographies about Jesus' life. And he would have gone and sat and listened to all the preachers in all the synagogues trying to take all this in. And then Luke gets together and he writes a very orderly account of what's going to happen. And he kind of, he places it all in kind of this chronological order and he gives us the thesis in Luke chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4, he says this. I write these things so that you can have certainty of the things that you have been taught. So timely, write to Theophilus. I want you to have certainty, Theophilus, that you can trust that Jesus is actually Lord and Jesus is Savior and Jesus is King, right? Now, both timely and timeless, we can look at and go, not only did Luke write this for the first century Christians, this is wholeheartedly 100% and applicable and helpful for today. To go, it's timeless, the same writings that Luke gave to Theophilus 2,000 years ago meet us right where we are in 2020 in the middle of our current climate. So um, what's happening in the first century is uh, all the Jews hate the Roman Empire. They're really, really oppressed. They're really, they're ta- being taxed absurdly heavily. They're all in debt and they are, they are completely mistreated. And they're trying to sort through how they live a life and this kind of oppression and slavery and bondage. And they, frankly, aren't really that interested in someone to save them from their sins. They're interested in coming in some kind of warrior king or some kind of leader that can save them from a political regime. They're interested in some guy who can show up and lead them out of the darkness of the current culture that can establish new kings or new justices or whatever it is, right? That can establish new governors, right? All these different things. So they were longing for something which we also are longing for and many of you are trying to sort through whether or not you're longing for something that happened in the past. This, you make America great again and you can point to a time that you think it was great and others are going, hey, that was great for you, wasn't great for me. Right? And so then there's this other side that we look towards the future and think that there's some, some option in the future where America can be all that we need it to be and people are putting their hope and stock and a couple of candidates going, maybe, maybe, maybe they can get us there. But you watch the debate, you've been reading the rhetoric, and you feel the same dirtiness in your gut, the same anxiety in your soul, the same, you know, heart rate increases in your heart of just the messiness of our country. And just to be honest with you guys, it's because our country is sick. Our country's sick, and this isn't that we just became sick. This is becoming more evident. Our country is built by broken individuals who cannot solve the problems that we face because the problems that we face are so much greater than policy and politics. They are innate in our heart. And what Luke is going to do in the Gospel of Luke is he's going to help Theophilus see a bigger picture and a bigger plan, and he's going to start to establish that there is a new ruler, a new king, and a new kingdom. And so if you're imagining this new kingdom's going to, this new king's going to show up and rule and reign, and Luke's writing this already knowing it happened, so he's going to go, okay, how do I prepare and set the stage for people to turn their eyes and their minds and their hearts to this new king and this new kingdom. And so Luke is establishing, and we'll see it over the next four or five weeks, that this 
warrior king, that this Savior Jesus is, came and he set the stage and was preparing, them, preparing us for what he had prepared for us, for them. And he did it all, wrote it all, established it all in the middle of a really, really, really broken political uh, uh, thunderstorm that was about to get much, much worse. And so here we find them in Luke chapter 3. And so last thing I'll remind you of before we read this is when I say the nation is sick, this isn't a shot at, you know, our leaders. This is just a, an acknowledgement of where the state of our whole world is, where your heart and my heart are. And So this isn't new. It's been sick for a while because you and I also are sick, and that's not offensive, and so the last thing you got to understand, when all these uh, Jewish leaders, were, or Jewish you know, nation was crying out for help, one of the things they said is, God, would you just tell us exactly what to do? Just give us the rules, give us the checklist, and so we see in the Old Testament where God gives them, what I told you about just a second ago, these Ten Commandments, these laws, these rules, right? And they thought, this is it. If I just follow these things, everything will work. What they didn't understand, and why we talk about it this way an awful lot, is the purpose of the rules wasn't for them to follow. Now, it'd make their life better. Sure, it'd give them some freedom and give them less regrets. But the purpose of the rules, that was, that was secondary. Primary reason for all these laws, and the way that we describe it here, is that they were a lot like an MRI machine, right? They, so God gives them these laws, but he doesn't just give them them because he actually thinks they're going to follow them, right? It's, and so the laws aren't going to save them the same way an MRI machine will not save you. When you go in, it doesn't fix your body. It does nothing. It doesn't align your joints, your cells. It does nothing. There's nothing um, in an MRI machine that when you get out, you go, oh, my knee's better, my head's better, my back's better. There is nothing that happens in an MRI machine that fixes you. You got it? So the whole purpose of an MRI machine is for you to go in and get a diagnostics or a diagnosis of what's going on in your body so that you can now have clarity of what's the problem and where to go to get the problem fixed, right? The MRI at its greatest level points you to a surgeon or points you to a doctor who can help you get well, right? So when God gives uh, the, the nation of Israel these Ten Commandments, all these rules, the purpose was to help them understand that they were not perfect they could not fix their problems. They couldn't even keep their own commitments, much less the ones that God had for them. So the purpose of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of all the law was for people to finally get some self-awareness enough to go, yep, I can't fix this. I can't follow it. So either we're in big trouble because we are sick, or we go to the one who can fix it. So the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments was to help us know that we need a savior. The whole purpose of all the mess in the first century was to help the nation of Israel know that they needed a savior. So when I tell you that our nation is sick, that's not in this devastating, depressive, melancholy moment. It's going, if we can admit that our nation is sick, then we can admit that we need help and we should look for where we should find help. So the whole purpose of where we are right now, what we're going to work through is go, okay, can we just turn our eyes to the only one who could possibly fix this? So if you're brand new to this, if you don't believe in this stuff, I just would say for just a second, would you just pause and at least go, yeah, our nation and world's broken. And everybody makes new promises, but it doesn't seem to be getting better. And just for, maybe just for the day, next 40 minutes, right? Could you, could you just consider that maybe there is a great physician, there is someone who can fix it, and there is someone who can solve it? Could you just consider that? And... For those of you who are Christians, here's what I hope happens. In fact, we're going to sit in the service with a very upbeat song. We're going to have communion, and we're going to celebrate 
who we are as nobodies, right? We're going to celebrate that because Jesus is the solution. And so for non-Christians, just say, hey, just for a moment, would you just suspend whatever disbelief you have? Just for saying, okay, God, if you're real, would you speak here, right? Um, and if you are a Christian, what I hope happens over the next little while is that you get this resolve and this confidence that you walk out of here laughing and you walk out of here smiling and you walk out of here with joy because there really is good news and good hope in this. And so what we're about to face and read right now is Luke is setting up also for the first century Christians to help them understand that their nation, their world was sick and broken, but there was a solution. And so what he's going to do over the next several weeks is lay a foundation for who we should put our hope in. And that person is Jesus. But here's where it starts. Luke chapter 3 beginning in verse 15. Here is what it says. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And so who we've been learning about for a while is this guy named John. So what's really interesting about this is we're having these arguments. These guys are talking about who's greater. I'm greater. I'm greater. I'm greater. My plans are greater. Uh, you don't have a plan. I have a plan. Your plan stinks. My plan's greater. Whatever those things are, right? You see these things. And so these two guys, we're going, okay, who is it? Who do we put our hope in? Now, 2,000 years ago, there was a group of people going, man, this political regime is beating us up. Literally, there's a bunch of people living out in the wilderness. Like, they're, they're homeless. They've been, they've, been, they've been created as outcasts, left their families, kicked out of the clubs, and they're wondering, is there a hope in the world? And all of a sudden, this guy, John the Baptist, shows up, and he seems like a, a good hopeful candidate for the solution for all of our problems, right? So you got John the Baptist, he goes, ah, maybe that's the case. And it makes sense that they think that, because Jesus actually tells us later in Luke, in his, in his words, he actually tells us that the greatest man to ever live on the face of the planet, besides him, of course, is this guy. This guy only makes it like 33, 34, doesn't make it that, even if that much, maybe 32. Um, so what we see right here is got John the Baptist, and these folks are wondering, is, is he the solution? Is he the plan? Could he be the one who fixes it? So their eyes are all turned. Same thing. New candidate. Okay, it's not those guys, not those guys. Maybe it's this guy. So they all are turning their face towards this guy named John the Baptist, who the scriptures have already told us that he was going to show up, tells us in Isaiah, now in Luke chapter 1, and kind of be the trumpeteer, the one who points people to the coming Messiah, the coming king, the coming president, right? And so one of the things that's interesting about John the Baptist is we're in the New Testament, but... Uh, Basically, if we're divided up Old Testament and New Testament, the Old Testament is kind of, the way we define it is promise, right? That one day God would establish his kingdom. One day he would rule and reign. And then fulfillment, which that's the New Testament, is the, when Jesus actually shows up and makes that happen. So the Old Testament is filled with uh, these men and women who would show up timely and declare that God would one day make a way where there is no way. They were called prophets. And 222 times in the Old Testament, at least, there was a word of God that was given to these people who had kind of announced that, hey, turn your face back to God. You can trust God. Lean into God. Put your hope and your salvation in God and put your hope and salvation that he would one day make a way. There's no way. So over and over again in the Old Testament, there would be these declarations. And a lot of times within those declarations, they'd say, the way that you would know it's going to happen is God is going to give you a sign. Uh, a baby born of a virgin. A guy who's going to show up and prepare the way. And so this great guy, John, when Luke starts, Luke chapter 1, he starts with his uh, birth, with these, born from these old, this old couple, right? And so John the Baptist shows up, and he's going to live out in the wilderness, and all he's going to do, he has one message. And it's like the last Old Testament 
prophet, the last one who's you know declaring all the promises, right? So John the Baptist shows up and he's like declaring, "Hey, one day, one day," and he's saying, "Repent." That means change your mind from the kingdom of God. The kingdom you're actually looking for is near. So that was the declaration. So all of a sudden, John the Baptist has grown up. He's a he's a full grown man. He's a desert wilderness preacher, and people are coming to him going, maybe this is where we put our hope. Or is this the guy? And watch what it says in verse 16. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So lots going on here. We're going to be in this verse in a while. So what John is saying is, hey, you got Donald Trump, you got me, you got Joe Biden. You can wrestle through who you think's greatest. But he says, the one who's coming, he's talking about Jesus here, is going to show up. And here's what he's going to say. He's saying, hey, while you think it's all about John the Baptist, you think it's all about one of these guys, the reality is it's not about any of these guys because who it's really about is Jesus, right? So he's going, this guy's greater, we're less. John the Baptist is going, hey, you want to give me, put your hope in stock and future in me, but I'm the wrong person to trust or put your hope in because I can't fix you. Right? And so as we look at all this, kind of what he's saying, same thing we're wrestling with now is, hey, you cannot, you cannot, you will not be able to put all your hope and all your future plans into some politician or some political identity. It will not fix things. Our nation is sick and it needs a greater fix than that. And what John the Baptist is saying is, you're coming to me to get, I'm going to solve your problems, but I can't solve your problems. And then he explains something really weird. He goes, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's talking about this baptism in first century, that, that, that word they would have understood to be like a cleansing. Right? In other words, they felt really dirty. I don't know how you felt after that debate. But they felt really dirty. They're going, something's off. We need, we need something to fix this. And so what John would do is he'd invite them in, and there's this, 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 uh, this object lesson about what it was. That's about all it was. And an object lesson where they would literally get this spiritual cleansing. And so what happened is John would bring these folks in, and they would be basically um, Jews who would go, we put our hope in Typhus, or we put our hope in some... Uh, some religious leader. We put our hope in some government leader. We put our hope in Pontius Pilate. We put our hope in Nicodemus. And none of them would be able to solve the problems they're having. So they come to John and go, is there any other way? And John goes, yes, there is. There is a coming kingdom. Do you want in on that kingdom? And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. And they go, okay, here it is. This marks the day. This marks the moment. This is the moment. And he would bring them in and he literally would put them into the water as this symbolic picture that their old them, the dirty them, the broken them was going into the water. There was this spiritual cleansing, and they would come out. And it was like a brand new mulligan. Like, hey, a new day, a new year, finally you can get started in the right kingdom. You've lived in the wrong kingdom. You lived in the wrong kingdom, so why don't you get in the right kingdom? So John's going, that's what's happening. He's saying, here's the weird thing, guys. I'm just putting people underwater. You put your hope in this weird thing and in me. Literally all I'm doing is putting some water on you. You think that's going to fix you? So you're doing these this spiritual traditions. You're walking through these things, and it's a beautiful moment to mark a, a greater moment when you can declare the old Jew is gone. The one who lived in the old kingdom is gone. The one who put their hope in the wrong people is gone. And now all of a sudden you have this new life. And so he says it's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful moment to make a declaration. But without the Holy Spirit, without Jesus, it's just a false declaration where nothing's going to get fixed. Baptism's not going to save you. And John's going... The idea that you're going in water and coming out and then tethering yourself to me 
is dangerous because all I can do is baptize with water. And then he says, but there's another one. And he says, first, the thing you got to know about this one is I, if you think I'm great, Jesus says he's great, right? I am not even worthy, worthy to untie or touch the sandals on his straps. They're just so crazy. In, in the first century, feet were just disgusting, right? Because... Uh, the way by which uh, all things were moved were through animals on the same streets that you walked on. And so in every place, there's just animal dung everywhere, right? And it wasn't like they had grass and pavement. So it's just dirty dust and animal dung. And so when people would travel, they didn't have like fancy steel-toed boots, right? All they had were sandals. And when they'd walk, their feet would get disgusting. And the shoes, right, their sandals were seen as this dirty nasty thing, which was actually kind of a picture of what they felt as Jews in a Roman Empire. And so um, a lot of people, Romans and Jews alike, had servants in their house, and that they could ask so much of their servants to clean them, to bathe them, to wash them, all those kind of things. But the one thing they couldn't do was actually ask them to touch their sandals, right? A servant, a slave, didn't even have, uh, didn't have the responsibility to do that for his master, even in this broken, dirty Roman culture. Right? They're going, that is so disgusting that uh, you know, they can't be forced to do that. Now, there are a lot of them who would volunteer as servants and caretakers, but they did, could not be forced. It was not rule of law or the letter of the law. It was not an expectation. So what John the Baptist is saying here is so strange. He's going, hey, guys, I don't even have to do this. But even if I wanted to do this, if I were to touch that part of Jesus, I'm not even worthy to touch the dirtiest, most broken part of the, of the thing that is connected to Jesus in this broken world. Right? I'm not even worthy of that. That is how much greater he is than I. So in a, in a world where the, the lowest of the lows did not even have to do that, he's going, okay, imagine that. Imagine Jesus. I fall below servant and slave and prisoner. I can't even do that. I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to do that. Like It's not even something I can do because he is that much greater. He has that much more power. And then he goes, and here's what's interesting. You think this hope of being baptized with water and, you know, getting, you know, a mulligan for the day, starting new, putting it on your calendar. You think that's going to help. He goes, but the one you really need to put your stock in doesn't baptize with water. Here's what it says. He baptizes with two things. You see this? The Holy Spirit, for today we'll use this little wind-blowing thing here, okay? And fire. See that? Holy Spirit and fire. Now, by the way, that word Holy Spirit, literally, it's two different words. It's holy, which means set apart, and pneuma, meaning breath or wind, right? And so this isn't like, when he, they hear this, they're going, what is this? They don't know what this is. They just hear that there's this, this special wind, like it's fancy wind, like it's set apart wind. You know, it's like a, you know, not really sure what to do with it. It's like monsoon level wind, but it's holy, so it's good. And so he gets two descriptions of Holy Spirit and fire. Now, some people go, well, the reason he's doing this, Luke is later in Acts chapter 2, going to show us this moment in Pentecost where God, uh, where the Holy Spirit comes and lands on his people to empower them to go establish the new kingdom, right? And what it gives us there is it was a sound like a rushing wind, and it looked like they had flames of tongue over their heads. So people go, hey, that's what he's talking about, that moment in Acts chapter 2. I don't think it is. Uh, and, th and here's how I'll back it up. I think what we're seeing here is actually very different in terms of significance with what John's about to say. He's not going to go, hey, one day you're going to get this Holy Spirit. He's saying there's two different things. There's the way that I cleanse people. Got it? That's his water. You'll get dirty again. The way that Jesus cleanses people, which is this Holy Spirit, this rushing wind, and this fire. So these Jews understood this. You can see this in the book of Leviticus, that the way by which things are purified or cleansed in the Old Testament, and in fact, there's this passage, really, really interesting. It says, anything that can withstand fire must be put into the fire 
in order to be purified. So they're saying, if it can, if it's a metal, if it's anything else, if it can withstand fiber, uh, fire, if it can withstand it, the only way by which it can be cleaned is actually with fire, which is really interesting because many of you think that your life feels a lot like a purging and a, a fire. One thing I just would offer you that apparently you can withstand it. If you feel like you're walking in this messy, dirty fire, Leviticus says anything that can handle it has to be put through it because that's the way by which things are purified. So what John is saying here is he's going, hey, there's going to be this separation. There's going to be this splitting of two different groups of people, those who put their hope and stock in political candidates and political kingdoms and those who put their stock in Jesus. So he is drawing a line here and he is going to explain how Jesus establishes his crew and purifies them and brings them in. And he uses the word fire and wind. And the reason we know that's what he's doing here and separating is because of what it says next. So he says, Holy Spirit and fire. He's unworthy to untie the sandal and look where he goes next. And he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff or the chafe the chaff will be he will burn with unquenchable fire now usually when people teach this they just kind of bypass over that one because it's a strange term right so winnowing fork fire what so john just said hey i only can give you this cleansing that happens with water which only lasts for at the most 24 hours what jesus is going to do is he's going to establish a kingdom and the way that he's going to establish it is he's going to baptize his people with what holy wind and fire now we understand that uh, when we see that, we go, okay, what's that about the Holy Spirit? And now we see what, what he's saying. He's saying, hey, here's the thing. Jesus has this winnowing fork, okay? So th- this is uh, interesting and not really something we practice. I guess some people still practice it, like uh, in, in other countries. You can still see this, like in India, some parts of Africa. So this had to do with the way by which uh, wheat was processed, harvested, right? So what happened is they would gather all the wheat, and then there would be this threshing floor where they beat it and kind of separate it. Uh, so they beat it, like, you know, kind of like how you would beat chicken with that, that meat uh, tenderizer, right? They beat it and then kind of separate it. And then what would happen is they would either grab what's called a winnowing fan or a fork. It looks like this, like a pit fork, right? And they'd pick it up, and what they do is they'd kind of toss it about. You got me? Toss it about. Shake it up. There'd be this shaking, this, you know, this unsettling moment for the weed. They'd pick it up, and they'd shake it. And then what would happen is the one who was responsible for actually cleaning up would take it, and they, so when they picked it up, there'd be um, a couple different things. There'd actually be the oats. You got it? You with me? And then there'd be the, the, the chaff or the chafe. It'd be the, the extra parts of the, you know, the, uh, I call them tusk, but apparently they're husk. I always get that wrong. The husk of, the, of that, right? And so it comes up, and what they do is they'd hold it together, and they'd find, um, now they'd use like an actual fan or someone blow on a fan. What they'd do is they'd go to a place that's kind of high, and there'd be wind. And what would happen, they'd take the winnowing fork, and they'd kind of lift it up and toss it. And what would happen in that moment? The, the light stuff, would, the wind, the, the chafe, right, the, would blow it. And then the heavy stuff, the stuff that was supposed to be kept, the stuff you're supposed to consume, the, the oats would fall to the ground, right? Just, a, just the way by which this was harvested and cleaned and processed. And so what he's saying here is, hey, Jesus. Jesus is doing something different in the baptism. He's actually grabbing his fork. Not like a pitchfork, not like an angry fork, but a fork where he's picking up everything. And the good stuff and the bad stuff is all in the fork. And then he's shaking it, mixing it, and tossing it up. And he's letting this wind blow it away. And he's letting the, those that are grounded to him stay put. And then it says, so they literally, so he's giving us this picture of what processing looks like, and he's talking about, so what happens is, uh, two things, all the stuff that's left will be stored 
collected, brought in to be consumed, right? Like, would be collected and put in the barn. And then they'd take all the mess, all the, all the, the extra excess, and what would happen is they'd light a fire, and they'd burn it off. So this is serious, guys. This is serious. I hate talking about this stuff, because I want you to like me. I want you to feel safe and comfortable at our church. I want all those things. But I would not be a good pastor. But I didn't help you understand that there is only two sides in this thing. There is not a blue side and a red side. There's not Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and if you're a Christian, you're one or the other. There's only two sides. There are those who have tethered themselves and placed themselves in and said, Jesus is Lord and King, and I participate in his kingdom and his kingdom alone. That's one side. Jesus is the King, Jesus is the Lord. And the only other side is everything else, everything that opposes him. So what John the Baptist is saying is, hey, you're trying to, you're trying to attach yourself to me, but the problem is if you attach yourself to me, you think I'm going to fix you, then you're actually opposing the only one who can fix you. You're actually turning your back on the only hope you have. So you've got to understand this. There's this purging. There's this process with fire and wind where God is shaking it all up and then allowing the elements, allowing this holy wind to separate that which is not safe, not good, not right, with that which will be attached to him for all eternity. And he uses this fire and this wind. So when he talks about the, when we get this baptism, there's kind of this two-part, right? There's this shaking. There's this you know, turning up. And there's this kind of establishing this, this realm of which things are moved out and cleaned up and purged. And then what remains? What's remaining is tether themselves and attach themselves to Jesus. So he's going, hey, when you experience these things in your life, you watch the political debates and you just feel sick of stomach, right? When you read the stuff online or you put your hope in, your in the stock market or your job and those things fail, that isn't that God is upset with you or he's trying to punish you. He is giving you clarity because this is the picture. He is actually separating those things so that he can get rid of the excess, get rid of the dirty, get rid of the things that are ruining your life. And it literally says this. And those things will be burned with an unquenchable fire. A uh, little trivia here. The word unquenchable there is actually the word asbestos. The Greek word is asbestos. And so what that is, you're aware, right? It's this fiber that they'd use for insulation and other things that... Um, that the reason they used it, I mean, now we know that it causes cancer and all sorts of complications, but the reason they used it is because it had a very high burn rate, or like, right? So, I mean, I'm sorry, it had a very, like, it, it was really, really hard to burn. So, like, in a, in a, in a school fire or a house fire, uh, that stuff would not be flammable. It would not spread a fire, right? So, what, what John the Baptist is saying is, is this type of fire is so hot, it's so hot. Literally, that word asbestos means unquenchable, meaning almost uh, non-combustible. Right? It's so hot that everything, everything's going to be consumed in that fire. So when you talk about this fire, you're talking about this, this crazy hot fire that's going to consume everything. And so he goes, hey, one of two things that happened. You think you want to be baptized in water? I wouldn't recommend that. I'd actually recommend the baptism that Jesus offers, which is by fire and the Holy Spirit, which sounds scary. Remember, anything that has to be put through a fire must in order to be purified. That's the way by which things are purified. That's what Jesus does. And then he says this. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to his people. <laughs> so he goes, guys, here's the thing, and this is where the line is drawn, and this is what's going to take us a while to get through it. He's just going, hey, you can put your hope in me, but I will fail you. And you can put your hope in my water baptism, but it will cleanse you for a moment. Guys, you can put your hope in a church service. You can put your hope in your Bible reading plan. But if that's all it is, and your hope isn't in the one who wrote the words, 
If, you're isn't, you're, if your hope isn't the one who established his church and, that, and his people, then at some point that will fail you. That will fail you. So John's going, don't, don't put it in me, put it in Jesus. And then he said, many exhortations. He's saying that he preached the good news to the people. So this is interesting. This is um, the good news we use as a gospel, which is usually about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This is the last of the Old Testament prophets. So he's still declaring that one day there will be hope and someone you can put your hope and trust in, right? That's Jesus there. And then it says this. So interesting. It says, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved, by him from Herodias for, uh, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. So now all of a sudden uh, Luke is telling us, hey, let me tell you what's happening here because you're going to see John do some great things. But John's going to kind of disappear from the picture. Let me tell you what happens to John. Right? So the greatest one in the world is declaring you can only put your hope in Jesus. He is the only place you can put your stock. And so John, uh, Luke quotes John, tells him those things, and then kind of gives us a kind of a, kind of a, a, a summary. Right? Hey, John, continue to Oh, people, this is good news. This is where you put your hope, in the coming kingdom, right? You could try putting everything else, but it hasn't worked out for you. So could you consider putting it in the one whose kingdom will be established and reign forever? And so he kept declaring that. And then he said, then he pans the scene, and he shows us a new person, right? And this new person is this guy named Herod, right? This guy named Herod. And so Herod is, this is uh, Herod the Tetrarch. Other times uh, called, uh, so Herod the Tetrarch or An- Herod Antipas. There's lots of names of Herod and lots of different ones, but they're all kind of from the same lineage. And so this guy is who he's going to introduce us next. So it says this. He says, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias. Let me help you understand this. So there's this lady named Herodias, okay? No, this is where it gets complicated. You can understand this. Herod Antipas, right? Or Herod the Tetrarch. Gr- Daddy was Herod the Great. Got it? Everybody with me? Herod the Great. Herod the Great had ten wives. Ten wives, right? One of them uh, birthed Herod Antipas. Now, there's another one uh, th- that birthed uh, Herod Philip. The first, the Herod Philip one. Not two. Don't, uh, so Herod Philip. So lots of wives. And then, so, but let's just don't talk about three of them. So this guy has lots of wives, lots of kids. One of them is Herod Antipas, who's going to become the governor of an area. And then you got Herod but he has another son with another wife named Aristobulus. Aristobulus, okay? Uh, so we got all three. Aristobulus, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip. Follow me? That's three of them. Now, this lady, Herodia, you see this? This is like all the, they're all named after this guy, right? Herodia is Herod Aristobulus's daughter. Got this? But she starts dating her uncle. That's right. They're Alabama fans. And so she starts dating her uncle. That is Herod Philip, right? So, ooh, love. Oh, Herod Herodias is now getting married to her uncle. Got it? Uncle, husband, Herod Philip. Now, gets crazier. Herod and Epus is smitten with Herodias. So he seduces her and steals her from his brother, half-brother. So he steals his, you get this? His uh, niece slash sister-in-law from her, his brother. You see how broken this is? Right, this is Jerry Springer. So what happens is they get married. See? And then, they, oh, there's a heartbreak. You see? Now, here's what's crazier. Before all this happens, Herod Philip and Herodias have a baby named Salome. Got it? Salome. 
She's this baby. And so what happens here is this guy is now married to this guy after stealing it from his brother. So his sister-in-law, niece, is his new wife. And John the Baptist is going, do you not understand how broken this is? Like, do you understand all sorts of dirty, broken things? Like, you are a terrible human. You did this to your brother. You did this to your uncle. Like, what does your daddy think about all these things? And so what it says here is it says, real quickly, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias. So John the Baptist calls it out. His brother's wife and his niece, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. So on top of all the other stuff, John the Baptist goes, you're not a good man. You've created a really broken kingdom. You've established some really broken things, and he calls it out. So watch what happens. So all the other things added this to them all. So John Baptist said a lot. Herod kind of takes this cumulative approach, comprehensive, and gathers all the end. Here's what he decided to do. That he locked up John in prison. Now, I told you that Luke's gospel is chronological. This is about one of the very few places where it isn't chronological, where Luke tells us more of the story. So he's going to tell us that John the Baptist gets thrown in prison because this guy is insecure about John the Baptist talking about this broken marriage. Now, if you read in different gospels, Matthew, Mark, there's an, another part of the story where one day on his birthday, Salome, in what seems to be seduction, and I positive that, she comes to her stepdaddy, step-great-uncle, right? Our great-uncle's stepdaddy. And she dances for him on his birthday. And he's so smitten with the way she dances that he says, hey, I'll give you whatever you want, girl. Up to half my kingdom. And she says, the only thing I want... Wait, let me think about this. What do I want? So she goes and talks to her mom and goes, hey, mom, your husband has offered me anything. What should I ask him? After the two of them have a conversation, they decide that John the Baptist, he is a terrible man who called them out on their broken, you know, uh, marriage, broken lifestyle, all those things. And she says, you should tell, she says, you should tell your daddy that you are your stepdaddy. You want John the Baptist's head. Pull him out of prison. And literally, they cut his head off in the middle of all this stuff. So this all is happening. And so Luke only takes two verses to go. Here's kind of the, the chaos going on. Here's the soap opera. And then, so he's going, hey, here's all of what happened. Then he's going to point it back, very quickly, back to Jesus. And so he gets thrown in prison. So what you see here in these moments is you see this tug of war between John the Baptist trying to point out and declare the kingdom. So you see this tug of war between the, the earthly kingdoms and Jesus' kingdom. You see this tug of war between all these fights, folks fighting for power all of them fighting for power in all sorts of different ways. And then there's just the king. And so what you're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, but over the next several weeks, is there's going to be this battle for the, against the, the kingdom of darkness, the worldly kingdoms, and Jesus' kingdom. And it starts with John the Baptist being thrown in prison. Here's what it says next. Now, when all the people were baptized, so lots of baptisms, lots of you know, cleansing, all those kind of things, and when Jesus was also baptized, something happens here. Jesus shows up and he gets baptized as well, right? Uh, um, and, was, and was praying. The heavens opened up. So a couple things to think about is, okay, what's the purpose of baptism? Because it's a declaration of uh, what Jesus does for us, right? That the old life is dead, the new life is coming. It's just, you know, we would argue even more than just this ordinance, something that we're called to. It's actually a sacrament. There's something sacred that happens when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord and then we repent of our sins. But we know... That Jesus doesn't have to repent of his sins because he doesn't have any sins. So what is he doing here, right? So why in the world is he getting baptized? 
Um, what we believe, really good uh, 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 guess here, is that um, what we see in the baptism moment is you see this old life dying. Going into the water is the indication of the death of the old life, right? And the coming out of the water is this new life in Christ, right? So this nineteen object lesson where you see old life cleansed, righteousness, and kind of come in. And you know, this is water, but it's supposed to show what Jesus does in that cleansing of, of us, right? And coming out into the, back out of the water, right? And so uh, when Jesus is getting baptized here, what we believe happening is he's actually foreshadowing how we get in on what he is doing, right? And so we should model what Jesus does is in, get, in getting baptized. But the reason we model that is because we also, when we get baptized, we're connecting ourselves to Jesus. So what we're seeing here is Jesus is modeling what's going to happen to him. He's going to have this earthly life. He's going to get murdered, by the way, for these reasons. Because he's going to establish a new kingdom and declare himself the king of the kingdom, right? He's going to get murdered for it. And he's going to, old life is literally going to go into the grave. And at that point, the world is going to feel so broken and so sick and so devastating. And then a few days later, Jesus is going to come back out of the grave and start appearing to people. So this moment of baptism actually is pointing to what's going to happen in just a few years, where Jesus is going to actually die and come back to life. And go. The way that you get in on the life is through your old life dying and your new life being brought into Christ. So the same power that Jesus had to conquer the grave with his spirit in us you now belongs to us so that we can also live in that resurrected power, right? So that's, uh, we'll talk about that a lot more later, but that's kind of the picture of baptism. So he gets baptized in this moment. But I want you to see two things. As he was being baptized, see what it says next? He was praying. So quick, this is the only one, the only one that tells us this. The other gospels don't tell us about this. So it's really important, guys, that there's something here. There's something explained. I think it's so important. That when Luke, almost every time Luke talks about prayer, the prayer in the gospel of Luke, in the biography, something crazy and supernatural is happening. So it's important for Luke to help us understand that there's this baptism, and that's symbolic. But in that, Jesus is actually praying. And what it says is, as he's praying, you see that? The heavens were opened up. So what's happening here is, for the longest time, generations and generations, people have gone, we want to see you, God. We want to know you. We want to be close to you. You seem so far away, right? Many of you feel the same thing. We want to see you. We want to know you. You feel so far away. We want to see you. We want to know you, but you feel absent from our current landscape politically. We want to see you. We want to know you, but we can't quite do it. In this moment, the heavens open up, which means we get to hear from God and the way by which that happened. God, hear me. Jesus gets baptized, and he prays. And just to be honest with you, because I don't, I can't give you the A, B, C, and D and help you understand fully how prayer works, because I don't know. It's just easier to go to the scriptures and talk about all the stuff we do know, right? But what we see here, this seems prescriptive to me. Jesus gets baptized, he's praying, and as he's praying, God opens up the skies and he's about to speak. So, the only real nugget I'm going to give you as Christians today, the only real takeaway, the only one, right? is that if we want to see something happen in our country, in our world, in our families, over this politically mess over the next 30 days, 31 days before the election, which is where we are, the only way I, by which I believe that gets activated is actually through prayer. So prayer is experiential. It's hard to go, well, here's exactly how prayer works. The reason you know prayer works is because you do it. Right? It's the same way. You don't know if a bungee cord works until you jump off the, you know, the, the, the cliff, right? And you go, oh, I guess that worked. Right? So the only way you learn about prayer and discover prayer is by actually practicing it. I understand that's hard and complicated. So what we've done over the next 31 days, we're going to give you very tangible things to be praying specifically for the election. In fact, you can go right now to the CLC family.church. At the very top is the clip that says, 
can click on it, and you will see this PDF show up where it tells you what to pray on October 4th. Right now, tonight, right? What to pray on October 5th. What to pray on October 6th. And for the next 31 days, we're going to pray specifically for this election. Because we see in this moment the way by which the skies get opened up, Jesus gets baptized, and he prays, and the heavens open up, meaning God reveals himself. You want to see God reveal himself? Then you, you got to pray. So you can click on that. You can download it. You can print it. You can have it readily available to you. Or every social media, you can get up and log on to your Instagram account, and that on the CLC page will we'll kind of walk you through the, the next day for prayer. And so would you join us as we pray, as we see this, so the prayer happens. The heavens open up. And watch this, verse 22, last verse. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So a lot of times we use this picture of a dove, right? We use this because this is where it talks about this dove. So we use this picture this dove. But it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a dove, just so you know. It doesn't mean that. What it means is, for the first time, probably in the history of the world, all the people are able to see real evidence of the Holy Spirit, right? Some of which we've never seen, right? That means in this moment, it's actually tangible. Like, literally, they can see the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to pray is, God, could we see your Spirit? Could it be so evident, like it's a dove, that you could see it? So it says this Spirit, right? This wind comes in and lands on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit comes in and it descends on him in bodily form. So you see the Holy Spirit show up like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And he said this, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. So you see this? We use this one, kind of king, lord. They talk about God. To, Jesus is getting baptized and he's praying and all of a sudden this Holy Spirit comes down and it kind of fills this place, fills Jesus' body. And all of a sudden, Jesus receives. We'll use the cross, right, showing what happens here. So Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, he hears this voice from God going, I am so pleased with you. You see this? Right here in Luke chapter 20, uh, 3, verse 22, you see the picture of what makes this God, this worldview so different than everyone else because it has this picture of the Trinity. We see it in the beginning in the very first few verses of the, of the, of the scriptures in Genesis that God and says, let us, meaning he's talking to Jesus, let us make man in our own image. And it says, and, and the, the earth was void, and there was a spirit, right, that was covering the earth. You see this moment in the beginning of scriptures where God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are together, and finally when it says kingdom is about to be established, when this, we see this kingdom, the reason we're reestablishing a kingdom is because the kingdom got broken, because our world got sick, but it wasn't always sick. In the very beginning, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and things were perfect. Right? And this is so important to get this because it's so different than every other worldview. In the beginning, God existed in three parts. One God, parts. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they were there. Here's why this matters. Because in the very beginning, they had all the community they would ever need. They had all the love they could ever need. Everything was just perfect. It was perfect. And yet, because they had infinite community and infinite love, what did they decide to do? They decided to create objects, not just objects, but people, to pour out their love on. So humankind was created. You see, every other worldview talks about this God who just existed by himself. That God's lonely. That God's codependent. And it's necessary that he, in some act of power, creates creation so he wouldn't be bored anymore. So he wouldn't be lonely anymore. So that someone could love him. You see, that's completely different than this Trinitarian God who had everything and needed and because it was so gracious and so kind and so generous, decides to create a human race 
to pour out his love. And in the very beginning, it said that God walked in the garden, the cool of the night. So Adam and Eve and God and the whole, you know, triune God were there. And then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve and us say, we like our kingdom. We want to establish our kingdom over your kingdom, God. That's what happens. That's what happens. And this moment, what we see is that God the Father is starting to bring his kingdom back. God the Son is there receiving it. God the Holy Spirit is empowering it. And in this moment, everything is good and right and perfect. Back the way it's supposed to be. And you see, this is what it says next. You are my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. This is so important that you see this before we wrap up. You are my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Has Jesus done anything yet? Has Luke captured a single miracle? Has he turned water into wine? Made dead people live, lame people walk, blind people see. No. You see this? He is saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. It means that God esteems him and gives him his value long before he performs. This is the thing you've got to understand about the gospel, and it's so important. There is nothing you can do to make God pleased and love you more. You hear me? This is not a gospel of performance. He's establishing Jesus as the Lord and Savior, and it's not because of all the stuff he did. No, he's going to do some incredible things. It's because of who he is. He is God's son. And what we understand in the scriptures is the son of God became the son of man. That's humanity, divinity, or divinity, humanity. The son of man, meaning one of us. The son of man means human flesh. The son of God became the son of man so that sons and daughters of men, that's you and I, can become sons and daughters of God. And so what we see here in this moment is God is reestablishing this community and he's inviting us into it. And you go, okay, okay, okay. And that's what he's doing. How do I get in on it? Which is why I'm so glad we get to conclude this service today with communion. Because that's how you get in on it. You see, there's two different ways to view baptism and communion. Uh, one is t- called ordinance. And that means just to be ordained. The other one's called sacrament, which means something sacred happens. I want you to hear this. When we get together, there's something sacred that happens in this moment, guys. Something sacred that happens. would happen otherwise. That there's something spiritual that we can't see, and maybe we'll get to see it today. Something we can't even feel. Something that happens when we participate in what the kingdom of God offers us, tells us to, to commune with him. Right? If you're Catholic, you would have grown up with the Eucharist, this idea that it's the body of Christ. And what this means, you got to hear this. Remember, Jesus' death means his body went to the ground. His resurrection means his body came back to life. And the way by which we get access to the triune God for all eternity is we get to also connect ourselves. So when we do this, when we take Jesus' body, when we take his body, what we're doing is we're really inviting Jesus into ourselves so that we can now be in communion with the triune God. So this is more than, oh, that's really nice. Let's do this in remembrance. Here's an object lesson. Let's think about what Jesus did. Now, this is a reminder that this is how you get in on the action. This is what changes all things for the kingdom. Is all of a sudden, your earthly kingdom, who you are, earthly body, all of a sudden, you invite Jesus into it in a literal way to come into your body, to come lead your life, to lead your little kingdom as you participate in his big kingdom, right? And so what happens at this moment, I don't want you to miss it, is we are inviting the coming kingdom by which only can happen through Jesus into our lives, into our bodies. So you go, can I do this? Am I allowed to? Like, I don't know. Do I have to be a member of the church? And here's the thing. Do you want to participate in this? The only thing you have to do is believe that Jesus literally showed up on this planet and died for you. That's why we use the cross to represent him, right? He died for you. But not only did he die for you, he came back to life to prove that he was God. So if you believe that Jesus literally died for your sins, for your decisions to walk in your own kingdom other than God, then you can do this. 
So if you believe his body was actually broken for you, if you believe his blood was actually shed for you so that you can participate in the kingdom, this is for you. So just join me, if you would, in taking Jesus' body in this moment. But Jesus didn't only say that his body was broken for us. He said his blood was shed for us. Right, now, let's tell the story too much, and I'll tell it quick. But I think it just helps us understand what happens. You go in blood, it doesn't matter. How does that cover us? And I'm going, hey, my youngest daughter, Sophie, she's sick. She's adopted. The way that she became our daughter is we walked into a courthouse, into a chambers, and a judge looked at all the paperwork, grabbed a blue ink pen, signed his name to it, and all of a sudden, Sophie got all the rights and privileges of being a Roberts. Blue ink. Blue ink made her our daughter. That's it. And nobody goes, no, that's not the case. Don't believe it. Right? You understand that. So if blue ink can make Sophie my earthly daughter, why in the world could Jesus' red ink, his blood, not write his name on your heart and make his son and daughter? Right? And so when we take Jesus' blood, he says, this is my blood that was shed for you. What he's saying is, is that I paid the price for you, so you don't have to pay the price for, for yourself. When Jesus sees me and says, well done, good and faithful servant, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. When this blood covers you, it means Jesus, or that God sees you the same way. So I just don't want you to miss this. Would you take all the rights and all the privileges that come being a child of the Most High God because of what Jesus did for us? Would you join me now? Jesus, boy, do we want to see something sacred happen. Boy, do we want to see some evidence of your real, real Holy Spirit. God, would your Holy Spirit, like, even descend like a dove in front of us, around us all week long. God, would you do that? And we know we have those rights. We know we can come to you right now and talk to you, our Heavenly Father, because of Jesus, what you did in establishing your kingdom, not just out there, but in here. And so, God, would we receive the rights and the privileges of being your child and claiming those things today, not because we've done something, but because you've done everything. And God, for the next several weeks, will we learn that we can put our hope in you because you're good and you're God and you alone are worthy of our praise. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what we usually do is we usually end in kind of like a reflective song with communion. I don't want us to do that today. The reason being is there's just too much sadness and disgust. I told you our world, our nation is sick, that it's just as hard to have some joy and so what we're going to do today in the parking lot, online, right here in the sanctuary, is we're going to finish with this declaration about how great God is and who he is. And here's the thing. We're going to spin it. We're going to acknowledge our current circumstances, which is we can't fix things. In fact, we're not even somebody. We are nothing but nobodies, right? And so we're going to sing about being a nobody, trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved our soul. And so would you join with us as we sing this song and conclude our worship service today? Nobody trying to tell everybody.
rescued me. You gave my heart a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see somebody but Jesus. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. Well, Moses had stage fright. And David brought a rock to a sword fight. You picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen. And you changed the world. Well, the moral of the story is everybody's got a purpose. So when I hear that devil start talking to me, saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody. Trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to sing. Living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. Living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. So let me go down, down, down in history as another blood-bought, faithful member of the family. And if they all forget my name, well, that's fine with me. Living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. So let me go down, down, down in history. Down in history. There's another blood bought, faithful member of the family. So I ever want to be. And if they all forget my name, well, it's fine with me. Living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope that you all remember that this week, that you are somebody in Christ, but we are all living to point everybody to Jesus. I want to end with this. Sorry, you get me again online and inside here as Josh greets those outside. But this is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or lighthearted. So I pray that this week that you remember that God is with you, that he would keep you encouraged and give you the energy to get through the week. And we look forward to worshiping with you again next week. Have a great week. All my life, all I know, God's been good, good to my soul. Mountain high, valley low, I'm going to sing wherever I go. All my life, all I know, God's been good.
Valley.